Well, as Pastor David said, uh, we preachers like to preach, and this sermon is a little bit of a long one, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. So I have a question for us all. Don't we just love it when we either read a book or watch a movie that teaches a lesson on pride? Stories like The Emperor's New Groove, right? Emperor Cusco, Humble Pie, or Pride and Prejudice, when we look at Mr. Darcy, that mean old grump, right? When we see the main character or the villain is an arrogant jerk, and somewhere in the middle of the story, something bad happens to them because of that arrogance, then finally they are they get a swift helping of that humble pie, right? They go from prideful to humble because something bad happened to them during this and they learn a lesson. And we eat it up, right? We love to to watch those type of movies, read those type of books because we have this sense of a feeling of justice that is served, right? Now, usually, the point of these is to get across that pride can lead to your downfall if you do not change. We rarely think of these type of characters as being us, though, right? We, we never think of ourselves as being arrogant or a jerk, right? We, we like to, to see these in other people, but not in ourselves, But we can sometimes end up being that character or that villain. We can sometimes end up being that arrogant jerk. And so in order to not become that, we must learn to humble ourselves and be obedient to God's Word. We must not let pride take hold of our hearts. Are we willing to learn a lesson this morning? I'm glad you said yes, because we're going to learn this lesson, even if it usually means that we have to go through suffering in order to learn it. Now today, we will see that God calls both pastors and the church, the flock, to be humble before Him, and how turning away from pride will give us hope in times of suffering. This week, we reach the end of our study of the book of First Peter. We have been navigating through this book in our study called Hope for Everyday Life. And today we turn our attention to 1 Peter 5 to finish off this book. And our study today is called Hope of Grace in Suffering. So please turn to page 182 of the back section of the Bible under the seat in front of you. Let's read these last 14 verses of the book of 1 Peter. Please follow along as I read to you. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all who are in Christ. Now with that in mind, let's look today for a path that God has provided His church to find blessing and hope in times of suffering. As Peter begins his teaching here, we find that he focuses his attention on the pastors. So Peter tells us that God has called pastors to care for his flock. Now you may have noticed here that this passage uses a term for elders, which is a term that we don't normally talk about. It's not an official uh, leadership position here in our church uh, because... We don't use that term in our church. But it basically is the term that is used for the same office. The New Testament uses three terms for this same office. The first one is elder, which is the one that is being used here, which which emphasizes the necessity of maturity among the church's spiritual leadership. The next one is bishop or overseer which shows the need for the church's spiritual leadership to have guard over the church. And the last one is the one that you're all familiar with, which is pastor, which shows the need for the church's spiritual leadership to feed the church with the word of God. Now notice that Peter here is referring to fellow elders in this passage. In other words, this demonstrates a level of humility on the part of Peter in that he is saying that he relates to these church leaders. He could have easily set himself apart by using the term apostle, as sometimes Paul does and as sometimes Peter does, to cast authority over what he was about to instruct to these leaders. Yet, instead, he he is saying that he is right there with them, that he is ready to face the same testing and the trials that they are to lead the church in. So how are the elders called to lead the church in the midst of these trials? Well, they are called to lead not out of sense of duty, but with genuine service. 
This service is emphasized in verses 1 through 3. Peter says, Be witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now earlier in the book of 1 Peter, we talked about the sufferings of Christ, right? In the second chapter, we read, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And in chapter 4, we are reminded, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So the point here is that in the midst of suffering and in the midst of the fiery trial that is coming, the pastor stands to be a constant reminder of that suffering, of Christ, and the purpose of that suffering, which namely is the gospel of Jesus. This is precisely what Luke refers to in Luke 24. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So friends, let me say to you, in the midst of your suffering, there is no greater hope that can be given to you than the reminder of the hope that we have as a result of the sufferings of Christ. The pastor is to stand ready to point you to the gospel in the midst of your needs. The pastor is to be first reminding himself of the glorious hope that is found as a result of the suffering Savior and reminding you of that as well. If you are here today and you feel hopeless, let me plead with you to let today be the day that you discuss the gospel and understand the hope that comes from realizing that the suffering of Jesus Christ it was to redeem you back to a relationship with himself. Speak with one of our pastors today. Now pastors are to be the prime example of the sufferings of Christ by leading in humbleness. Peter emphasizes this in verses 2 and 3. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. They are to be servant leaders. They are to be Examples of the humbleness that our Savior portrayed, regardless of the circumstances that we might be going through. 
Now we have talked about this in the past, uh, the term servant leader we had talked about, particularly when we were talking about husbands, and I actually preached that one, so I remembered that one. Uh, and, and saying that it is not to lead by having authority over others, but rather leading by serving others and not exercising authority over them. This means that if the church is about to go through a fiery trial, the leader must be willing to volunteer to stand in front of the church and to guide them through it regardless of the attacks. Otherwise, we are taught that God will humble the proud, and we'll talk about that a little bit later here. Now, I am, personally, I am so thankful to have a leadership, a pastoral staff here that is willing to take the stand to serve the church and stand before the church on the foundation of the Word of God and who are not going to back down from that truth. And I hope that you are thankful for that as well. We praise God for that. Now, even in this time, even when the pastor does this, when they take a stand for the gospel and they, they are humble, they, they must do so without allowing pride to set in. It's so easy for pride to set in. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a watered garden or rushes by a flowing brook. It is an all-pervading sin and smothers all things like dust in the roads or flour in the mill. Its every touch is evil as a breath of the cholera fiend or the blast of the simum. Pride is as hard to get rid of as charlock from the furrows or the American blight from the apple trees. If killed, it revives. If buried, it bursts the tomb. You may hunt down this fox and think that you have destroyed it, and your very exultation is pride. None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. You may labor against vainglory till you conceive that you are humble and the fond conceit of your humility will prove to be pride in full bloom. Pride can so easily set in. But there must be no room for pride in a pastor's heart. So pastors are to be examples by being ready to preach the gospel, and to serve others. Pastors are also to lead the church by remembering and knowing that the chief shepherd will return. In verse 4, Peter reminds us that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there is hope for the pastors who demonstrate godly leadership in the church that they are not doing it alone. There is a shepherd over them, and they are simply under shepherds. This encourages and gives me hope as a pastor, and I hope it gives other pastors hope as well, that my Savior reminds me that He is a shepherd, but He is my shepherd as well. So I can trust in Him. I can trust that He will guide me. He is well acquainted with the sufferings, and shepherding challenges of this life and is able to shepherd me through them. There is hope that ultimately my focus is following His authority 
as I shepherd and I do not have to rely on my own wisdom, power, or resources for the task at hand. So I praise the Lord for the chief shepherd who knows the difficulty of the task and so he knows how to reward his shepherds well with an unfading crown of glory. Pastors must keep their focus on the eternal reward. And if you do, you will not be discouraged nor fearful in shepherding. Riches or power will not sustain a pastor who is shepherding. Rather, you need need the eternal hope of Christ and the eternal reward that awaits you in his return. That reward is the unfading crown of glory. So pastors are to lead the church by being humble in trying times, knowing that Christ will reward them. Now Peter here begins a little bit of a shift in his focus. He refocuses on the flock. As we continue in this passage, the flock is called to follow their pastors because they will lead you to humbly trust in the God of hope. So now... He's talking to the church. Verse 5, he says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just as pastors must not allow pride to set in, so must the church. God does not want his pastors lording it over the flock, but to be humble servants and how they care for the church. And at the same time, he exhorts the younger to be submissive, to be humble toward their leadership, because there is a temptation, especially nowadays, there is a temptation for those younger to look down, to not honor, and to be discontent with the elders that God places over them for their good. Even when these elders are leading in a righteous way and are being a good example. For instance, we see this in Moses' life. In Numbers 12.3, it mentions to us how the shepherd leader Moses was very humble. In fact, he was more humble than any other man on the face of the earth. And yet, even the men of that generation viewed Moses as lording his authority over them. They were discontent with his leadership. And so Peter encourages the younger men in particular to choose to willingly put themselves under their leadership for the unity and growth of the church. Because if the church, if the whole church is characterized by humility toward one another, they will experience the grace and kindness of God that he gives, whereas the proud will experience opposition from God. As Tom Schreiner puts it, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. 
So we learn that all you who claim Christ and want to be obedient to Him must humble yourself. There it is. Must humble yourself. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So I have a... I'll be running through a few questions here. Just try to follow along. If you want to answer out loud, do so. Not in this one, though. This one's a long one. What does pride ultimately say about your belief in the power of God? What does it say? At the end of of the day, your pride ultimately is you claiming to possess more power than the very one whom you are refusing to humble yourself to. Let's think about that for a second. In other words, my pride says, I, with my limited knowledge, limited strength, limited ability, believes that I am greater than you. Where are we called to humble ourselves? What does the verse say? Where are we to humble ourselves? Anyone? Under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is referring to His sovereign power at work. God is working and directing and guiding even in the midst of the suffering. And friends, in the, in the midst of your suffering, regardless of your prideful beliefs and your own abilities to handle yourself, there is no safer or better place to be than under the mighty hand of God. I hope that you are keenly aware of this, that your own inability to navigate the suffering of this life on your own is leading nowhere. Realize that this is the very reason that God puts pastors in place. They are here to guide you through the suffering and guide you to be humble before God. Now sometimes pride does blind you from that, And so you may want to ask yourself, what do you trust more, the Word of God or your own? And so I have two more questions here. What happens when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? What does the verse say? He will exalt you. Correct. He exalts you. And God's purpose of your humility is under His mighty hand is so that He can exalt you. Now question two, what does pride ultimately do? Destroys you. Eventually your pride will fail you. Eventually the end of this sin and all sin is destruction. But humility is exalted in the end. Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted by the very one to whom they have humbled themselves to. Now what is exalting? I think we need to wrap our brains around that for a little bit. It is that even in considering this phrase even, we we might be tempted to show pride. So I think it's important to, to talk about this a little bit. Basically, we could say 
So if I humble myself, if I humble myself enough for long enough, then eventually God will lift me up on some sort of winner's platform of humility and there I will stand with a great pride rejoicing in the recognition of my own humility. That is the temptation that we might have. But no, this exalting is when God lifts us up out of the sufferings that we have endured in His divinely appointed time. It's not an exaltation over others. It's an exaltation over our suffering. So even when we believe that we are the most humble of them all, we must recognize that we are not humble enough. And God will continue to humble us if He needs to. Now, there is a way for us to humble ourselves, and Peter teaches that. We must be casting our cares on Him. Verse 6, he says, Casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Now here, we are told that casting is a means by which we humble ourselves. Casting is a supporting participle in this passage. So in other words, it is one of the expressions of humility that you cast your anxieties on Him. And this is more than just your anxieties. It is everything that you care for. So it could also mean your discontentment, your discouragement, your despair, questioning, pain, suffering, all of that must be surrendered to the Lord. Not casting our cares on Him is prideful. So by casting our cares, by casting our anxieties, we show and we become humble. One of the expressions of pride says that I can handle all of this on my own. I can do it. I can face my anxieties in my own strength. I can overcome the discontentment in my life and eventually get what I want out of life. I can overcome my discouragement by masking it with overachieving or some form of hiding from the realities. I am able to endure my despair I will figure out the best way for me to live. I can take on the pain. I'm a man. I can take on that pain. I can endure this suffering. There's a problem here. What is that problem? That our pride will never be able to sufficiently provide the peace that you want in the midst of your suffering. If you carry your own anxieties and try to fight them in your own pride, eventually they will crush you. So instead of trusting in yourself and being prideful, why not trust in the God that cares for you? Trust in the care of God. Peter reminds us to trust in the Lord because He cares for us. In the end, your pride will rob you of the sweetest care that God wants to provide to you. Isaiah tells us this, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, 
His reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing use. Think about the imagery of this picture. God with his all-powerful arm, full of might. Think about it this way, the, the muscles ripping the muscles rippling, the veins popping out, the shirt about to burst. And yet, he is still gentle. He is still comforting and caring for that scared little lamb. On one hand, he is destroying those who are rising up against him. And with the other, he is comforting those who are suffering. This is a sweet care that God wants to provide for you. Don't let your pride rob you of that. Peter also reminds us that our pride can be blinding and ineffective when we seek to fight off temptation. And so, therefore, during times of suffering, we must be humble and resist the devil. Verses 8 and 9 he tells us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So we are called to be sober of spirit and to be on the alert. The devil is always looking to devour just like a lion seeks to devour a frail lamb. And we can sometimes make ourselves easy targets. So, it's easier said than done, so let's unpack this a little bit. In the simplest form of the word, what is the opposite of sober? What do we think of? We think of drunkenness, impairment, intoxication. In other words, to not be in a state of clear thought. If you knew you were in a situation where you might be attacked at any moment, you would not want to be in a state of impairment that would prohibit you from reacting in an appropriate way, right? You would want to be sober. And so this is a metaphor to serve as a reminder that we need to be careful not to be so consumed with the intoxicating pleasures of this world that we are unable to recognize the attacks of the roaring lion that seeks to destroy us. In Romans, Paul reminds us that, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And John also tells us, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful 
boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We must be alert to this, not to allow ourselves to give in to this. And when suffering sets in, we learned last week that it is expected of Christians, right? That suffering will come. And when difficulty comes, who and what will we turn to? Are we going to, des- to resist the devil? And if so, how? Well, Peter also tells us how. He says to stand firm in our faith. And in chapter 1, he reminds us to prepare our minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does this verse tell us about being prepared for the attacks of the devil? You need to have your mind prepared for those attacks by being reminded of the strength of the hope that is found in Christ. So you are aware of the danger of the lurking lion that is seeking to devour you, but instead of lurking in fear and trembling and looking around every corner, instead you are seeking to have your mind prepared for potential attacks. Notice this verse says that you are fixing your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Christ. And to whom does God show grace? We read this earlier, right? Verse 5 tells us God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to stand firm in our faith by being humble. By being humble enough to recognize that we cannot endure the suffering alone. We cannot fight off temptation on our own. We must trust in God's mighty hand and in His loving care for us. We must also understand that we are not the only ones going through this suffering. Peter reminds us that there are brethren around the world that are going through this same suffering or even worse. And yet, they have been sustained. Therefore, He gives us a hope during suffering. Now let us think through the context leading up to this point. We have discussed multiple times that the folks that Peter was writing to were in the midst of great suffering, significant persecution, trials, and great testing. And they had been warned at the end of chapter 4 that the testing was coming in particular to the household of God. And therefore, Christians are to expect suffering. We have seen that the pastor or the shepherd needs to be ready to lead the church in the midst of the testing that is coming to the church by being an example of humbleness. And so through, through all of that, we learn to endure suffering with eternity in focus. In verses 10 and 11, Peter says this, 
After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What do these verses teach us? What does a little while mean to you? Now you may be thinking, my suffering has been going on for ages. I can't even keep track of how many years this has been happening. So Peter, you surely got to be kidding me. You can't be serious about this. Well, let's, let's put that into perspective. What does it mean to suffer for a little while? Do we look at this with eternity in mind? Now we see a term here that is given to us, a phrase that is given to us. He says, His eternal glory in Christ. And so we know that we should be looking at this with eternity in mind. With eternity in mind, we can see that our suffering is for a little while. So how long is a little while? Well, it is your entire lifespan. And you might be thinking, well, that seems like a lot. (laughs) How am I supposed to be expected to be ready for any potential endurement of suffering when it's my whole life. And you might be thinking, I just want a little bit of peace. Come on, just a little bit with no suffering. And you, you might be thinking, where's the encouragement in all of this? You know, Come on. Well, there is some encouragement. I promise you that. Peter tells us in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So compared to the rest that is offered in eternity, the sufferings of this life are very short. Let's think a little bit. Let's do a little bit of math. What percentage of eternity is 80 years? Anybody? We need a mathematician. Oh, here we go. Here we go. People know math. Who knows, right? (laughs) Nothing, nothing can compare to eternity. That is nothing compared to eternity. In 2 Corinthians Paul tells us, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we can rejoice. We can have hope that although in the moment our suffering may be pressing, difficult, hard to endure, our God says that it is momentary. It is light. It is but for a little while. And we can trust that our God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Yes, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're welcome. 
And he tells us this at the end of verse um, 10. He says, He will himself do this. He will perfect you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. After your suffering, the glory of God will come out. And, and what will God do for those who have been suffering? He will perfect. In other words, God will renew you. You have suffered so much that you need to be made whole again. He will confirm. God will stabilize you after your period of suffering. He will strengthen you after your suffering so that you can worship Him for eternity. And He will establish you for a life of eternal praise to our glorious God. Therefore, we can, we can even in our suffering, we can rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Verse 11 reminds us that we can trust that God has dominion over our lives. We can trust that His sovereign hand will put leaders in place to guide us during our time of suffering. We can trust that our lives will be cared for completely and we can trust that we will find rest at the end of our suffering. Now if you're here thinking that you can handle this on your own, that you can make it on your own, and are being rebellious towards God, His Word says that He is opposed to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. His Word says it. And as we learned last week, your suffering is caused by your sin and rebellion. So I urge you to turn towards Christ, to seek Him, to trust in Him, and to humble yourself before Him and find His grace. Now Christian, if you claim Christ, then let's work at being humble in the face of our suffering. We know that we are to expect suffering, and when our suffering is caused by fighting off temptation and not giving in to our fleshly desires, when we find it difficult to and suffer through the act of putting off pride, lust, sinful desires, and putting on humbleness. Let's run to Him. Let's run to our Lord and to the ministries and, and pastors that He has put in place as a means of grace for us. We have reason to rejoice in this. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the clarity that we have that you're commanding us to humble ourselves before you, Lord. And also the clarity that we have in knowing that even in our suffering, even in our attempt to humble ourselves, you are there and you will guide us through that using pastors, using the church body, you will guide us through that. And we rejoice in that, Lord. And we thank you because you have created a way for us to find your grace and hope during our time of suffering. We praise you and we love you.
Christ's name. Amen.